the DBN Network. Browns fans talking to Browns fans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the uh, brand newly named uh, This Believe Land is Your Land, which um, is, is a goofy new name for our podcast that we uh, let people choose at the end of the, the last pod because I didn't think that anybody would listen to the end of it. And uh, much, <laughs> much to my surprise, I got messages from people after we recorded saying, hey, since you said I could name it, here's what uh, here's what you have to name it. And some of it was less than complimentary. Um, <laughs> shout out to my neighbor. Like, I know. like Damn you, Hiram. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm five foot eight, but I don't need to make a podcast name that centers around my, my shortcomings as a human being. But, but thank you for your input. It's noted. And I'm definitely going to write my initials in your lawn with my lawnmowers sometime shortly. Um, <laughs> but, but we'll roll with that for the meantime. And if, uh, if, we, if we hate it, we'll move on to something else. So um, we are recording live on Wednesday night. Uh, so, so everyone has had three days to revel in the glow of a victory uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, and we won't take too much time talking about the, the game on Sunday. But I know uh, the, the energy that uh, Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns created at home against the Baltimore Ravens is still, still has Cleveland buzzing and still has the rest of the sports world taking notice. Uh, and for the first time in a long time, I feel like I've seen uh, a real positive upswell of, of – expectations for the Browns uh, going forward for the rest of the season. And I'm very excited. And I know you guys are very excited. Um, I've, I've heard a couple of your guys' thoughts uh, over the course of the week, but um, what do you guys think? What do you guys think of that, uh, that decisive home victory? Sure. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, you know, what? I, man, I, I just, I, I'm not entirely sure what to do with myself really. I mean, like, <laughs> like I met, like I mentioned in some of my, my pre podcast notes, it, it's kind of like, this is an extraterrestrial type of situation where the Browns are actually winning games and looking like a legitimate NFL team. Um, we've got a, a quarterback that's, that's doing real NFL quarterback things. And, um, I mean, Snoop Dogg was in the house today. So, I mean, what more <laughs> do you need to know? This is like, this is, this is a, a this is just a, a groundswell of support and love for, for the team that, that we've loved for so long. That's been so, so crappy. And, and, and it's great to, you know, to, to see Baker step in his first legitimate start at home and, and beat the Ravens who, you know, were one of the, the NFL's best defenses and, and just fight through the, all the adversity that, that we had, whether it was from the ref, from the refs or from, from coaching or from whatever it was to, to pull off that overtime victory. I mean, I was down here in new Orleans and uh, I just got off a plane from Hawaii and I, I, I raced to the bar to, to watch the game and everybody in the bar was, was cued in on me and my Baker Mayfield Jersey and just so excited <laughs> to see the Browns win. I, I just feel like this is a uncharted territory for us and it's, it's exciting. Yeah, I agree. They, you know, just, it's just a different feeling is what it is. You know, we've had, we, you know, last time that we recorded, uh, it, Baker Mayfield wasn't even starting. We were heading into that Jets game. Yeah, I right. had a good feeling about it, even despite the fact that uh, Tyrod was starting it. I was wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, here came Baker Mayfield. And, you know, now we've got about two and a half, uh, you know, maybe right about there, um, games worth of film on him and feeling for him. And, man, it just uh, it feels like a different day as far as Browns football goes. And, you know, I grew up, I think I spent a large chunk of my childhood as a Packers fan. So I remember, you know, you know, getting up every Sunday, getting ready to watch Brett Favre throw the ball. And uh, that's similar to how I feel now. It's, uh, you know, and, and it's a feeling that I had forgotten for several years, you know, uh, many years, actually, probably close to 10. And uh, it became a familiar feeling creeping up in me. And I'm like, holy crap, now this is what it's like to have the quarterback. And uh, it feels good and it feels exciting heading into every week. You know, the Indians go down. I'm sad about that. But at the same time, it wasn't able to staunch the, you know, the excitement of, who knows what's going to happen every Sunday now that Baker Mayfield's leading this team. Yeah, I feel exceptionally bad that the Indians and Cavs had to die so that the Browns could live, but but here we are. We're living in a uh, we're living a in a world. world. We're living in a world where the sports hopes of the city are likely uh, going to rest on the shoulders of the Cleveland Browns. So everyone should uh everyone should be excited for that uh, outcome and also terrified that we've left ourselves in this place. And I <laughs> 
I remember telling <laughs> friends, like, on Sunday, I really don't want to let the Browns be the team that has to buoy my sports happiness for the weekend. Like, this is not where I wanted to be. Uh, but you know what? They came through, and it was great. Um, most of uh, – I think I think most of Sunday kind of ran according to scripts uh, for – if we looked at it abstractly. I think that <clears throat> these were two defenses that had played very well on paper, the uh, Oakland debacle aside. And uh, under those pretenses and the Browns being at home, it, it's kind of left to, to assume that this was going to be a defensive slugfest. Um, I think that it was unusually exciting as a game, despite it being a defensive slugfest. And, and that was because of the fact that the teams were still moving the ball a lot and there's still a lot of exciting plays on defense. And it made it a watchable game, even though it was kind of a stinker uh, for a score. I think that the, uh, the things that most surprised me at the end of the day um, <clears throat> were – two things, and I want your guys' perspectives on the things that you, surprised you about this team and about that game. Uh, the thing that surprised me offensively was that with the game on the line in game five, we finally saw Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley decide that Duke Johnson was a viable weapon and started using him, which just mm-hmm. like, I guess must have thrown Baltimore completely off kilter because he ripped off a couple good runs, um, which, which he was probably capable of all along. And I think that, uh, Defensively, I was just uh, completely floored by how effective uh, Jabril Peppers was, not just in the run support game, but also in coverage. There was a couple times where he absolutely laid the wood on tight ends and wide receivers um, and, and did it in, in a way that they didn't draw flags. And I thought that, that was super cool and, and very, very surprising to me. What about you guys? Yeah, so uh, that one thing that was crazy to me about this game, uh, you mentioned Duke Johnson, and one thing that totally shocked me, and I watched this game twice before I saw this statistic, so it's just that much more surprising to me. Duke played like 40-something snaps in that game. Did you guys know that? No, That's I sure didn't. It's nuts to me. It's, I mean, he only had a few touches. He had a handful of touches, probably as many as you can remember. <laughs> But he played 40-something snaps in that game, and uh, I guess, you know, mostly either as a decoy. I think part of that has to do with uh, Baker's uh, tendency. He's going to take that ball downfield if he thinks he has any chance to do that. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was very surprising to me to see Duke have that many snaps. I, one thing that I think is interesting, and I listened to the uh, Browns Film Breakdown podcast today earlier, which I highly recommend. All seven of the people that are listening to the, this podcast, they go check that out as well. There's some great content <laughs> in there. Um, I noticed that Jake Burns talked about snap usage for, versus uh, touches and carries, and I thought that was an interesting take. You don't hear a lot of people talking about that, in that this game, Chubb and Duke Johnson actually had a much larger uh, share of the backfield uh, duties, you just didn't see it play out on the field as much. You didn't see those guys take get the ball, at least not until closer to the end of the game. But but Chubb was in on a lot more snaps than he usually is, and it seemed like Duke Johnson was in on a lot more uh, scrimmage, traditional running back snaps uh, than he usually is, too. No, that's true. Chubb also had uh, a lot more snaps than you would have guessed based on his second straight game with only three carries <laughs> but he did you know they talked about involving him a little more in the game that's not really what i had in mind but he got three carries again but had uh, probably i don't know um he might have even had 10 times the snaps that he had last week uh, i don't have that number in front of me but mm. i don't know what did you think mike yeah what was your extraterrestrial yeah. thoughts on this mike <sighs> man beat me up scotty no i <laughs> i feel i feel like duke you know, I watched the game in its entirety a couple of times, as I'm sure many of the listeners have here, too. Um, it seemed like to me, at least Duke Johnson was used a lot more in pass pro versus actually getting touches from the running back position, which kind of points at the deficiency that the, the coaches have pointed out anyways. And Nick Chubb, right, he's 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 kind of a liability in that area. But I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear the, the percentage number. I, I hadn't listened to that podcast yet um, from Jake. Um, but, yeah, I'm just surprised to, to know that he was on the feel that much but when i did see him yeah he was you know he he was protecting a lot more than he was actually doing anything on offense um and yeah i mean i i i think we need to get him involved and i know jake pointed this out and i know a number of people have pointed this out getting duke johnson involved in the past game i think that'll be something interesting to see how how we mix that in moving forward against the chargers um and you know Talking about the running backs, you know, I'm, I'm, I know Carlos Hyde hasn't necessarily ripped off the biggest yards per carry average in, in you know, in, in the league, but I think he's doing a lot of good things to help this offense and, and give us balance. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to see kind of how we mix it up against the Chargers, whose whose defense, um, as as you may or may not know, um, isn't that you know necessarily very good against the run. So um, I'm looking forward to see kind of what we do uh, in, in that regard uh, this weekend. Nice man, and it's actually good to hear somebody uh, with positive notes on Carlos Hyde. Um, I think it's very easy to take a nuanced take to the Browns' backfield and say Carlos Hyde doesn't have the ceiling that Nick Chubb does, and he doesn't have the electric playmaking ability that Duke Johnson does. But he is a absolute professional. He is a great pass blocker, and he is a guy that's going to get tough yardage. He's a guy that's going to um, get that third and one uh, carry and drag some drag some people along the way. He's a guy that's going to fall forward every time. He's a good mm-hmm. mutter type back for the AFC North. And while I think that as the year progresses, you're going to see more and more of his snaps go to the other two backs, which is totally fine by me because it's going to keep those guys fresh. Um, but there's an absolute um, job in place for Carlos Hyde and the kind of back he is. And I hope he sticks around for a couple of years. I hope that they can keep those three guys uh, longer than just one year. Cause I feel like every year we have a completely different backfield uh, and the results stay kind of the same. It would be nice for both the offensive line and the running backs to get a familiarity with each other that doesn't begin in training camp and end at the end of the season. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, now I've got two points based on what, uh, you know, that last point of yours. But uh, first of all, I want to say that this was definitely a game that I was happy to have Carlos Hyde. He did some yeoman's work here. I mean, he he had some tough yards. It was a tough game. uh, And he did some things that. I'm not sure that the other two backs were uh, well suited for. I think he really gained some tough yards for us. So uh, this was definitely um, a game that I was glad to have him getting carries and and doing well with them. Uh, But also to your point about him sticking around for a while, I think that all kind of depends on uh, who's who's running the show because, you know, and I don't want to get – too far into Haley, you know, uh, and and knock down this positive vibe, but uh, he doesn't seem like a guy who necessarily will be able to figure out uh, a great mix of carries and touches for these guys. You know, there's some people out there that are really good at that. Uh, Todd Haley and his history, um, he doesn't have a history of splitting carries very much among his his running backs. So I think this is a new territory for him that uh, maybe he will get better as the year goes on. Uh, I don't I'm not sure that he's been in a scenario quite like this one where you have uh, these three backs that are all good in their individual ways. And, um, you know, and so there's a reason to carve out roles for them. Uh, You know, he's been more of a lead back uh, bell cow type offensive coordinator. So um, we'll see how that plays out as the year goes on. And I think that has a lot to do. Well, it may have a lot to do. If if you keep the the current coaching staff, I think that's going to have a lot to do with what they do with the running back position going forward. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly and 100%. And I think that's probably the biggest gripe amongst most Browns fans here at this point. Um, We're we're done grousing about the quarterback position, and the defense is playing really well. So the thing that they fixate on is either the running back usage or whether or not Njoku needs to have a hand transplant. Um, Well, let's let's also realize and and point out here that, I mean, Carlos Hyde, I think, has the second most rushing touchdowns. I could be wrong on that in in the NFL at this point. And he's also averaging, I think, you know, uh, we are running the ball and and doing it more so than almost any team in the NFL. So I think a lot of that also has to deal with the offensive line finally gelling and and getting some sort of cohesiveness and, you know, as a unit and and being able to really execute the game plan, uh, open up holes. I mean, you know, Carlos Hyde was able to, to rip off runs of like 10, 12, 17, eight and six yards versus the Ravens. I know that's just a small sample size, but as, as John pointed out, a lot of them were after contact. He absorbed a lot of contact, bounced off it, and, and still gained you know some yards. Uh, I think some of that, some of his negative runs or his runs that were limited to just a couple yards were impacted by field position and and defensive uh, play calls that you know were easily predictable. And so, you know, I, I think as we move forward, we're going to be able to see a, a little bit more. Hopefully, as as 
uh, John was pointing out, um, uh, you know, hopefully our, our offensive line puts us in a position where where Haley, is, you know, feels the the, the ease of, of pushing these guys in and, and substituting these guys in and getting uh, you know similar production. Well, I'm actually really uh, kind of startled that you're talking about the running backs and the line finding some sort of consistency in gelling because I didn't see that at all in this game. I thought that um, they really did a good job individually of. Uh, getting some chunk yardages on the ground when everything was going right, but it felt like an all or nothing thing to me. And I have to go back and rewatch. Maybe I'm missing out on something, but it felt like everything was either mm-hmm. hit at the line and dragged forward for either a loss of one or, uh, you know, a, a gain of one, or it was a big chunk play. I just felt like there wasn't a whole lot of consistency in between. There was, there was a lot of negative uh, running plays smattered in amongst the, um, the, the, the positive chunk plays. Um <clears throat> The next question I have for you guys is uh, I want to start what we'll call a, a weekly segment of what is surprising you the most about this team at this point. And it's actually kind of a bummer. Like uh, we don't have as many hilarious things to talk about yet. Um, by now in a typical Brown season, we'd be at least halfway through our bingo board. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad I didn't waste the time making one because it'd be way off at this point. So um, John, I want you to go first. What, what thing about the Cleveland Browns 2018 season has you most surprised? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know how much comedy I have for this at this point in the season, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think that the overall performance of the defense is what surprised me. I think a couple of uh, game plans by our boy Greg is what has surprised me. I think that our I thought boy. we'd be five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think we thought we'd be five games in and I'd be saying the same thing that I was saying last year, but here it is five games in and he's had a couple good game plans. So I'm surprised, mm-hmm. you know, they got him the players, you know, we made fun of a lot of the excuses that he made, uh, you know, for w- where the defense was last year. Uh, and they, you know, I mean, sure. We've definitely had some lucky breaks and we're definitely the benefactors of these turnovers, but I've got to give credit where credit's due. And it's not somewhere where I thought I would. Greg <laughs> Williams. Yeah. It, it may just be at this point that um, I have to realize that any defensive coordinator in the NFL could probably succeed if he has the right talent to execute what he's trying to do out there. Now, that may be a possibility. And that like using Greg's historical defenses as context that like he has found success before and maybe the league hasn't moved on that much. Maybe he's not complete trash, but I'm going to wait another four or five games <laughs> before I come to that. I think those numbers are really going to even out as we uh, invite the likes of Phillip Rivers and uh, Pat Mahomes into town. Uh, what about you, Mike? Yeah, I think I think if anyone's looking at the Cleveland Browns in 2018 and aren't surprised that our first round draft picks are not only contributing, but are leading the league from the rookie category. If, if you're saying that you're not surprised by that, then I think you're lying. Um, I mean, <laughs> you look at you look at Baker Mayfield. Uh, I mean, he, he's the best rookie quarterback by you know, pro football focuses standards, um, not only just in the overall rating, uh, but when you look at what he's able to do when he's throwing from a, a pocket and under pressure, um, you know, he's the third best quarterback in the entire NFL when throwing under pressure. And I think that's that's been a, a complete surprise. And, and, Unsurprising, and a, sir. Unsurprising. Well, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm surprised just how much success he's had as a rookie against the adversity that he has, especially against the likes of the Ravens coming in. Um, you know, he, he's able to do some things that that are just flat out surprising. And I think if you look at the defensive side, I mean, to be number one in turnovers, to be number one in, in, in fumble recoveries and to have the second best defense um, against, against uh, you know, opposing quarterbacks, I think that those two things or those, those two things combined on the offense and defensive side, uh, you know, have been uh, an absolute, um, you know, godsend for us. And it's very surprising that, that we're playing so well on both sides of the balls with, with, with our rookies. And um, yeah, that's, that's what's been most surprising for me. I, th- I think what, what's been most surprising to me so far is that um, they found creative ways to get the rally possum involved in the second game after he was discovered. <laughs> and I can't wait to see what they do in the third home game because um they, I don't, I, I don't know if they showed it on TV at all, but they actually paraded the guy out from the dog pound in one of the commercial breaks onto like a platform, and he had like this like fake. I'm, I'm not making this up. And he had this like fake visor with like crazy hair sticking out of it. Um, and they were like, "This is the man, the legend." And they showed the video of him catching it, and he like came out on the field and did a couple like, "Here we go, brownies." 
and I was just like, at first I thought they were going to bring the possum itself out, and I was super hyped. I was ready to like run through a brick wall. I was like, we're winning this game. They're bringing the fucking possum back onto the field. This is going to be the best. <laughs> but that was a close second. I'm, I, I just can't wait to see what they're going to do in the next one. Um, yeah. I couldn't believe that the possum was actually sighted again outside the stadium before that game. And they, they've got to do something to keep that guy around. He's, he's, uh, he's definitely electric. If they wholeheartedly replace swagger with the possum and just like ran it out on the field with a leash, like I'd be a hundred percent. Yeah. It's not, it's not even an insult to swagger. Like swagger's probably great. I think that he was uh, definitely Wally Pitt by moose as the best dog in the Cleveland facility. But that being said, like, just let's let's turn into the skid. Let's turn into the Cleveland Jugs and just have a mascot be a possum. Like, why not? Guys, you know that's going to be a setup. That's going to be a setup for a – you know how the internet is these days. It's undefeated. If they trot out an imposter versus the original rally possum, <laughs> they are going to find out and we will be exposed. <laughs> You're not the original – <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll go back to the video of all the fake quotes up at Brown's headquarters, and they're like, look, these guys can't even get the possum mascot right. This is clearly an imposter. They'll have digital measurements of his whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so moving on, um, I, I, we're 20 minutes, 24 minutes into the pod. I want to talk about uh, the artist formerly known as the San Diego Chargers, um, and I'm very, very excited for this portion of the podcast. I actually have two very close friends who uh, – lived and breathed and were diehard uh, Chargers fans when they were in San Diego. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, but the Chargers are actually the Cleveland Browns West. Um, they, they uh, huh. And I'm going to quote Deadspin here specifically. Um, if you thought that changing an owner would somehow shed their penchant for late game dick shooting, uh, <laughs> you're wrong and they will still find a way. Um and I think that that just perfectly encapsulates uh, the Chargers. And obviously the huge difference here, and everyone that's listening is screaming, like, but the Chargers are actually good, and they've had a good quarterback, and they win games. Like, the Chargers have a lot of talent every year. Every year they're projected to be a dark horse playoff team, a dark horse Super Bowl candidate, and every year, at least three or four times a year, they find some hilarious, like, late-game Brownsy way to, to step on their own dicks. Um, it looks <laughs> Which is it's why, I, yeah, which is why I think that they are the the, the Browns West, and it, it doesn't help that now they are the the app the also Rams in Los Angeles behind a Rams team that just looks like absolute world beater. So they are just the JV squad, um, and they move from one fan base that like loved the team and was very passionate about the team, but also could get over a tough loss, but in the middle of January by going to the beach where it's seventy five degrees and sunny. Um, to a fan base What's that, that like <laughs> I hate you so much sometimes <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to a fan base that also has that opportunity, but isn't going to really be passionate or care in the first place. Like this is a, what have you done lately? What have you done lately? What have you done for me? What have you won uh, fan base? And I just think that they're going to wallow in it. Um, so yeah, Browns West um, get excited. Um, Mike, I know you have thoughts about, the chargers themselves and, and what's going to happen in this game. So let, let, let's hear what uh, you think is coming down the tracks. Sure. Well, my girlfriend just texted me that miles Garrett needs to take his shirt off. So I don't know if that's important, but I just want to throw that out there. Um, but in terms of the chargers, <laughs> critical, uh, bounds of, critical Browns analysis. Um, there. Yeah. Some in-depth analysis there, but no, in terms of the chargers, I mean, I just want to point out that I, I don't know what effect this is going to have, but obviously the chargers owner just passed away this week. Um, so that's obviously going to be motivating their team internally. Uh, I'm sure that's going to, you know, kind of bring them together, et cetera. Um, so, you know, uh, un unfortunate news to hear on, on that account. But, you know, I'm a little concerned, to be honest, with the, the running back duo that they have. You know, they have, um, you know, a really good combination of, of Melvin Gordon, um, who I can go into all the stats, but, I, you know, I think he's going to be a big problem. Uh, he had 55 yards after contact last week. He was tied. He's tied currently for the most running back receptions for first downs in the NFL with 14, uh, 28 receptions on the year for 261 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, he has seven touchdown receptions in the last two seasons, which is second only to Todd Gurley. Uh, you know, he's averaging 4.6 yards a carry. Um, and he's this year alone averaging career best in target shares uh, from the quarterback. So, 
24% of the target share in San Diego currently. Um, he's getting 8.5 targets per game, and he's averaging 38% target per route run. So he's going to be a, a handful both on, on the ground and, and in the air. Yeah. And then you look at um, Austin Ekeler, or um, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but You're definitely he, mispronouncing he's also. That. That's okay. I'm a, I don't care about that. But <laughs> I don't even know. He's, what it is. He's, a, he's averaging six yards per carry, and you know he's he's also averaging almost 15 yards per reception. And you know the, the Browns are going to have to to really corral the running backs from from San Diego. I think to to have a a decent chance of of winning this game. On top of that, I, I really think Greg Williams is going to have to dial up a, a less aggressive per se. Um, game plan against Philip Rivers just because you know he he's producing the most explosive plays um, on the season from from a passing standpoint and he's also getting the ball out and, and, and being successful doing so under the pressure uh, and the best in the league so you know we've got to continue to, to, to pressure him that's Greg Williams mo but he's also got to be you know kind of crafty and and how he disguises that and, and, and builds in coverages that are gonna help to exploit those quick passes and, and whatnot. So, you know, they've, they've got some, some weapons and uh, we've got to approach them uh, accordingly. Oh yeah. No, I, I agree with you in terms of those running backs, you know, uh, they're explosive. Uh, I, I think one of the things that stood out to me watching this tape is that they really stress you laterally with yeah, this offense. Absolutely. You know, they, uh, yeah. and, and that yeah. could be tough. So, uh, especially if you're trying to get up field real quick, you know, they're very good with screens. Uh, you know, they go wide receiver screens, they go with draws, they, uh, but they, and they run the stretch, you know, uh, they, they do those things very often and they're very successful with that, you know? So, you know, those are the kind of things that I think I worry about against the Greg Williams defense. Those are the kind of things that can be successful against us. You know, we're, we're going to have to tackle a little bit better than we have been, I think. And uh, we're going to have to recognize those screens a little better than I think we have the last few weeks. Uh, just, you know, watching how they were against the Raiders, uh, they really absolutely were able to get chunk yardage, especially on first down. Uh, one of the things, you know, when you look um, at – what they say analytically is good is to pass to the running back on first down. And I won't get too deep into that, but they do that quite often and quite successfully. So um, you really got to cover them sideline to sideline, um, especially on those early downs. So, you know, that's what I'm looking at for us to be successful. Yeah. I want to, I want to pile on with what you're saying there. I, I took the exact same thing away from it and it really feels like the San Diego or excuse me, the, the Los Angeles, uh, offense, the Chargers offense, is uh, what the Browns offense should be uh, based on the skill sets. Because in a lot of ways, the Browns offensive skill players are very similar to um, in, in strengths and weaknesses to what the Chargers have. Melvin Gordon, and I'm going to take a, a ration of crap for this, is not head and shoulders different than uh, what, what Duke Johnson can give you in that he is a versatile threat. He will catch the ball. He can run with the ball. He's shifty. He makes guys miss. Um and the way that uh, Phil Rivers gets the, gets the ball out of his hand quickly, he's one of the lowest time to throw uh, metrics guys in the league. Um, he essentially is a version of Derek Carr where he can do all the things that Derek Carr did in Oakland where they just basically boat race the Browns defensively, but he's also much more accurate down the field. He also understands what he wants to do a little bit more, and he's capable of uh, creating when the play breaks down and, and in those kind of structures. And in a lot of ways, I look at Baker Mayfield as a uh, future incarnation of Phil Rivers. He's got a little bit of Tony Romo in him. He's got a little bit of Drew Brees in him, but there's also a lot of similarities in the way that uh, Philip Rivers plays the game. He has Philip Rivers has a much wonkier delivery that I think that when Browns fans see them side by side, they'll say, "Okay, like this is this is an iteration of this that I can understand and I can get behind." Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how we how we dial up our defense too. I mean, Rivers has only had two interceptions on the year, mm -hmm. and there's only only two quarterbacks that have that have done better than him um, from a QBR rate this this you know through five weeks and that's golf and breeze mm. um you know rivers is at 116 on the year so far through five weeks with a 70 percent completion percentage so you know our defense that you know really the the we've been hanging our hat on turnovers and interceptions it's going to be interesting to see how we you know kind of change the the, the the facet of the game and, and how we impact Philip Rivers if we're able to get some turnovers and, and create some some chaos for him to to lower those numbers and, and put it in our favor so it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of what we do to, to mitigate that. 
Yeah. And, I, and while you guys are making those points, too, and that time to throw, one of the things that I noticed that just to make a real quick point is that, uh, you know, I would love to see. I don't think they have these numbers anywhere, but the time to get the ball out from when you decide he is I would guess that he is near the top of the NFL at that. I saw several plays against the Raiders where they had him almost dead to rights. Uh, no reason he should get the ball out uh, at all, let alone accurately. But like, it, despite this really wonky delivery that I remember all the way back to Ohio State when they played <laughs> against him in 2013, yeah, yeah. Uh, North Carolina State, um, you know, this weird delivery, he somehow makes it through this thing faster than a ton of more technically sound quarterbacks ever do. So sure. I don't know. It was just it was it stood out on tape. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot of research to look up Philip Rivers against the Blitz or top NFL quarterbacks against the Blitz, and Philip Rivers excels against it exceptionally. He's a guy that will murder you. Is top five in the NFL consistently at at, at at taking away exactly what you're doing. And last year when the Browns played them, I think it was last year or the year before, he was specifically calling out the coverage concepts the Browns were trying to throw at him. He knew exactly what the defense was trying to do, and he just pistol whipped them. Um, so really, what you're going to, need to be able to see from Greg Williams if the Browns are going to be effective against the Chargers is that they're going to have to stay disciplined in the way that they uh, contain him and move him off of his spot initially. But if they start sending the, the Greg Williams specials, the, the, the six and seven man blitzes at him consistently, um, it's basically just going to be a question of who gets the ball last because the Chargers defense is also uh, not terribly good. And in a lot of ways is very yeah. similar to, to Oakland. Um, and it'll just turn into a who has a ball last, who can score more, who can not make the, the mistake that ends up uh, stepping on their own deck. Yeah, and I think that that is one thing that uh, is rough coming into this week because one thing that Greg hasn't been able to do well this year, he's done a lot of things well. He's had a couple of good game plans, those types of things. Players have played well. But one thing he doesn't do well and has not done well is disguise uh, blitzes and yeah. coverages. They do not do that. They don't disguise their coverages or blitzes. And against a guy like Philip Rivers, that's why you hear a guy like Hugh asking, begging Browns fans to make it the loudest that they uh, have ever heard here in the stadium. Because that's what another thing that Philip Rivers does extremely well. Yeah, and I'm I'm concerned about uh, the ability of the Browns defense to adjust mid-game as they start to see that that is not effective. I'm hoping that they can keep their game plan squared based on what's happening in the game. Um, and I, I honestly, I don't expect to see a whole lot of that. I think that the Browns defense will likely regress at least a little bit. And I think that the Browns are going to have to score. They're going to have to, they're going to have to maintain and keep the ball uh, for, for, you know, chunk possessions to keep the defense fresh and they're going to have to score. They're going to put seven up on the board and they can't um, rely on their special teams to, to, to back them up and, and put points. <laughs> Certainly not. Um, so, so they're going to have to put seven up. Yep. Yep, and and you know what, I, I think part of what gives me hope for that, Josh, is that you know the 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 San Diego defense is is giving up a lot of first downs on third and short. So if we can mix in that running game to get, keep a good balance, uh, the surprising thing is from from our perspective, from the Cleveland perspective, is that we're we're the sixth most explosive play offense so far in the NFL. Right, we're we have 30 explosive plays of more than 20 plus yards. So if we can mix in those short runs and, and keep the chains moving and then hit those explosive plays, we're going to be able to get those points. And something that we've harped on before on this podcast is, you know, coaches making adaptations at halftime and making adjustments and, and, and not just sticking to well, this is what we do. So we're going to continue to do it. And, and I'm going to be really interested to see if, if we do that on both sides of the ball this game to, to ensure that, again, we can either mitigate what the Chargers are doing on offense or if we can exploit what they're not doing on defense. Yeah, just like the uh, just like the adjustments that they'll have to be able to make in game uh, defensively, offensively, it's going to be super important for the Browns to um, get away from playing to their tendencies, because I find that through five games that that is a thing um, that they have the hardest trouble with. That they they tend to throw and run from predictable sets, and they tend to run and throw on more predictable downs. So I'm hoping that um, with five games under the belt, that this will be the fourth game uh, that, that Baker Mayfield played in, that Todd Haley is able to disguise what he's trying to do a little bit better and try to run against. The tendencies that have been established already on this team like you said they, they tend to run more than other teams 
and those runs tend to be very successful or enormously damaging to their ability to get a first down. They're either <laughs> losing yards or they're getting big chunk plays, and really they got to find the in-between there. they got to be able to establish some consistency and stay on schedule because the Chargers' defensive backs and linebackers are not good in coverage. These are, these are te- this is a team that you can exploit down the field, but if their front seven is being able to play downfield and pin their ears back and come after it, come after the Browns, as we saw against the Ravens, you can rattle Baker Mayfield. He is still a rookie, and he is still going to take a second to understand both what his offensive line is giving him and what's happening downfield. Um, so, so they really have to make sure that they are setting him up for success, and they aren't counting on him to dig them out of second and 21s and, and third and 11s and third and 9s. Uh, they they got to make the the offense a little bit more uh, disguised, a little bit more unpredictable. So expect more jet sweeps and reverses inside our ten yard line. Perfect. Uh, By Rod Streeter. So expect me to need a helmet <laughs> to keep from a uh, running head first in the wall. Is what I'm hearing. Uh, one thing. You, one you th- Sorry, you know what I am excited to hear about from Baker today uh, in his press conference was, you know, he's aware of the sack issue and he's also aware that he needs to continue to get the ball out quickly. So, you know, that's the thing I love about him is, you know, he's a quick learner and he's cool and calm and collected under pressure and, and nothing really seems too big for him. So my, I guess my hope is that, you know, Knowing what he's learned so far, he can apply that and and kind of you know tweak it this game and, and moving forward to to kind of again mitigate what the the defenses are going to try to do to him. Agreed, agreed. And the last note I want to make on the the jet sweep talk, just because I hate myself, is um, I actually agree with what Jake said as he diagrammed that play that the execution of that play was actually really poor and it was a bad idea to begin with. But he called the right offense. That should have been a huge chunk play for the offense, or should have at least been five or six yards. He only had to cut that inside of the uh, the quarterback, and and there was a lane to get up inside, at least get a couple yards out of it. Taking a loss in that play is both a uh, tribute to Rod Streeter's hubris, that he thought he could outrun the defensive end there, and also um, the poor execution and the bad blocking that he was getting on the play. So I don't think it has to be a little bit somewhat on the coaches as well, too, when you're talking about giving that play to a guy who was on a couch a a week or two ago, you know? Sure. Sure. I didn't even know the guy still played football. You I know, remember uh, before we picked him up. So, you know, it, it has to you still I don't want to put every damn thing on the coaches. But, you know, like there has to be some accountability there for for putting a guy, you know, like that in that position. I actually remember when Rod Streeter was playing for Oakland and he was a free agent and the Browns were into him the first time before he uh, before he came to the stop a couple of years ago. The, the, this isn't the first love affair the Browns have had with with Rod Streeter, but um and, and I hear what you're saying, and that's why I tried to preface the statement with, it's not the play that you want to be running inside of your own 10-yard line. I just wanted to say that when that play succeeds, it is playing against tendencies. We're doing something that's different than what they normally do in that situation, which is run Carlos Hyde up the middle or you know run a bubble screen or you know do something dumb. Um, and instead, they yeah. tried to do something different. And, and so we could only bust their balls for going against tendencies or going for tendencies. In this case, like it's a bad play idea. It's not a time to get cute, but it is a play that um, kind of goes against what they were, were trying to do up to that point. So, who knows? Uh, fair point. Fair point. Can I throw uh, a question out there to you guys real quick? I know this is kind of off script, but in, in, in the game flow, when the offensive coordinator is calling this play, how, how legitimate do you think it is that the offense – the offensive coordinator is calling play a and the head coach in the heat of the moment is going <laughs> to overturn, overturn play a and say, Hey, offensive coordinator, I don't like play a go with play B. Then the offensive coordinator then calls in play B to the quarterback to then execute. Like how realistic is that? I mean, do you, at that point, do you just you know, like chalk it up to, okay, this is a bad play call. I'm going to talk to you after the game because it sucked. Or do you legitimately have time in the heat of the moment in a game to say, Hey, guess what, Todd? That's a bad play. Go with this play instead. Like, how realistic is that? Do you guys think? So the the savior here for a bad and cutesy play call is Hugh Jackson. That's what we're suggesting. <laughs> well, I I just seen the argument that okay, you know, Todd Todd Haley calls this play, and you know, Hugh Jackson's job is to overturn it in the heat of the moment instantaneously and say that's bad. We should go with this instead. Which I don't think that's a legitimate thing. So I'm just 
curious, like, again, in the heat of the moment in the game, you're calling your offensive coordinator who you've given control to call plays is going to say, we're going to do this, right? Is I, the head coach really going to just, is he going to have the time to, to intervene and say, nope, that's a bad play. Let's go with this. And then we're going to change the play call, call it in to the, to the huddle, which has already announced the play. I mean, I just don't see if that's realistic. And I just wanted to get your guys take on that. So um, first I'll answer your question, which is, I don't think that that's something that happens typically in functional organizations. I don't think that, um, <laughs> I don't think that your, your head coach jumping in and saying like, I don't think we want to run this here. Let's and, talk about the Browns though. <laughs> and even talking about the Browns, I think the absolute worst case outcome for anybody who watched the last two years of this team would be for Hugh to backseat drive Todd Haley's play calling. I think that um, we need in any stretch and any imagining of the 2018-2019 Browns for Hugh Jackson to learn how to manage the things that he can manage and turn over the play calling capabilities wholly and completely to somebody else who is going to occasionally make mistakes. He was occasionally going to hit on some big ones, but the last thing that you want there is you to get involved again in the play calling. And I think that Hugh definitely has some input into how the script should be run, what their pass run fit should look like, what kind of ways that they're going to attack. But in the flow of the moment, no, like I can't imagine, I can't imagine the thing that happens. And I exceptionally do not want that to happen for Cleveland. Agreed. Okay. So let me get a little bit in on this um, and how I see it so far. So, uh, what we know for sure, because Hugh has told us this, is that uh, he, uh, Haley has control of the offense, but Hugh remains in control of critical decisions, which, you know, on its face is something like, you know, whether or not to go for it on fourth down, you know, things like that, you know. But we're not sure exactly how far the scope of that goes. Um, what I have seen uh, is several situations between uh, I think mostly with Mayfield because he's the one who pushes it. Uh, I've seen several situations where he seems confused at what he's getting in on the mic and ask them to hurry up or, you know, you know, and I know that he had some actual mic issues on this last game. That's not what I'm talking about, but he has had a couple of situations where I've seen him, uh, you know, to the point where I maybe suspect that uh, there's some, alternating voices in his headset um what's going on i don't know if that's the case or not but uh i know that he's not giving up everything i don't know where that line is on critical decisions whether that's critical third downs or just whether or not to go for it on fourth down um you know, I agree with Josh in that it would be a disaster for Hugh to be interjecting after Todd makes a decision. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not sure that those types of things aren't going on based on some of the things that I see. Like, I mean, have you seen Baker like look toward the sidelines and confusion? Like not just this week where we legitimately had the microphone problem. But yep. looking toward the asking them to come on, come on, get get me the play. <laughs> you know, I've seen that. So, you know, uh, I, you know, when you combine that with maybe a little bit of imagination, um, what, you know, Hugh might think is his right to call in on critical decisions. You'd think that there's plenty of critical third downs in a game. We say that uh, the announcers say that they do it all the time. This is a critical third down. Is that the type of thing that Hugh thinks that he should be able to step in on and and do something with? And, you know, is any of that getting crossed in the wires, uh, you know, in the headphone set of the quarterback? I don't know. I've seen seen precious few calls where it seems like there's a struggle to get the play call in. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to answer what you're saying. I don't think that that has been happening because I think that we would see – based on two years of historical context, especially with rookie quarterbacks, a struggle to get the call in into the line. And we haven't seen that at all. That's how Haley's been on top of it. Um, no, no, I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, I think that's, uh, I'm I, not sure I, I totally agree, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes on, uh, as far as the season goes. I'll, I'll tell you what, we're going to find way it. to handle this is for you guys to arm wrestle in the pit this weekend before the game. That's it. <laughs> I think that the way that we will handle this is we'll wait until the season's over. And as we're trying to come to grips with why things went the way they did, assuming that we don't make the playoffs, I think that there will be a true Hollywood story level 30 for 30 documentary on why everybody wants to pile on Hugh Jackson as being the fault. 
for what went wrong, what went wrong while taking credit for everything that went right. So I think that there is going to be every opportunity for that tell all to happen, and, and we'll we'll get our answers then. Fair and enough. This, and besides, I would totally whoop John in arm wrestling. He was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one last thought before we give a quick round of predictions. Um, I, on, on Twitter just now, they, they published a stat that um, in the in the NFL this year, the greatest number of rushes that went for less than or equal to zero yards, meaning you either get to the line of scrimmage or you're hit for a loss. Cleveland is number one in the league um, at 33. San Francisco and the Chargers are close, um, but they are significantly out ahead of any of the good offenses. So. Yeah, I think that that goes to um, you're talking you're talking about offenses here, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think this goes to uh, what they're doing on first and second down, you know, uh, and like you said, like without getting, you know, head and toes into into analytics, like it's not as smart to run on first down and second down as it is to pass. You, they, you don't have as many successful plays. Yeah. You, you know, successful plays usually meaning like, you know, at least four yards on first down and at least half the distance to go on second down. You know, that's, that's generally how they look at things. And yeah. the Browns are bucking that entirely. And, uh, you know, I'll just go ahead and say it. Okay. Like the, you know, the Browns leading the league in rushing attempts and especially leading them on first and second down is not actually a tactically good thing. And I don't think, you know, uh, I've said it before and I, I, I still don't have these stats in front of me. I said it on my last podcast with, uh, with Jake, I want to have the stats of Baker Mayfield's conversion rate on third and long, because I think it's so far above average or expectation at least that because uh, I think we keep putting him there. I think it goes all the way back to preseason and it, and we keep doing this. And uh, I think we're seeing that on first down quite a bit. So that, that kind of a stat doesn't surprise me whatsoever. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good point. And it kind of flies in the face of, of me believing that the offensive line has been gelling better. Um, but I, I do certainly agree with the, the your point that the third and longs are, are a product of you know kind of failed for, you know first and second down whether it's run attempts or whatever it is drop uh, passes and, at times yeah exactly i was just going to say I, I i you know we've been in the position third and long and, and baker's put it on the money however we've dropped you know passes have been dropped whether it's callaway or who, you know whoever it is um and so you know, it's yeah, it's that that's an interesting stat. And uh, unfortunately, um, I think that it's a more of a, I guess, uh, um, a, a consequence of play calling on first and second down to your point, John. Yeah, I think that, that there's a little bit of that, um, you know, ambiguous trying to establish the identity type thing. You know, they they talked about this way back in the in the off season. You know, I mean, they they came into this season with that plan of being this rud first team. And uh, guess what? We're seeing that on the stat sheet. We are leading we're leading the NFL in rushing yards and we are also leading the yards in attempts. <laughs> and um, and, you know, similar to I'll just make this point real quick. The you know, similar to when last year when we were close to the top of the league in rushing yards uh, against as a defense, you know, all year all season long, we, you know, were either top three or number one in the league in stopping the run. When you know, we're sitting here in a time in the NFL where stopping the run doesn't really matter. And we are sitting here leading the Regan rushing. And leading the league in rushing yards as an offense when rushing the ball really doesn't matter that much. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think we're bucking trends in a little bit the wrong way. And I think that says a little something to the coaching. I'm not trying to be a wet blanket, but that's that's kind of how I see it right now. <laughs> I fully understand. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so, uh I'm going to close up this podcast by uh, asking you guys for your predictions. I'm going to go first and say uh, I think the Browns lose a tight one. I think that this is another slugfest, kind of like in Oakland. Uh, and I think the Browns just, between their special teams and their youth, are going to make a mistake or two that, that, that they can't make, and they end up losing this one by three. I'll say 37-34. John, what do you think? 
Uh, you stole a little bit of my thunder there. Uh, I wasn't sure, like, when you got to the end of your prediction, whether you were going to be predicting a low-scoring game or a high-scoring game. I do think that uh, there's a ton of opportunity to score points in this game. You know, I think that uh, I don't you know, I think we're getting a break with uh, Joey Bosa not being in this game. Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to rush the passer especially well. I think we're going to be able to score a good amount of points. But, you know, honestly, in this type of game where you think that both teams uh, have the ability to score a bunch of points, either between the Chargers with their quick passing game, uh, and that doesn't even, you know, it's not like, Oakland's quick passing game where it's a West Coast offense. Phillip Rivers can get the ball out quick and go downfield on you. But, uh, you know, so I think that they can and uh, will have a good chance to score a bunch of points. I think it's going to be a little bit of a foot race. Um, but how can you how can you responsibly take the Browns in a, a foot race type game? with the special teams in the state that they're in. So I'm just going to have to, I'm just going to have to agree with you. And it's not really any, any, anything for me to say against Baker or our defense. It's, you know, we got a tiebreaker that we lose every game. So I'm going to go with something very similar to what you said, Josh. What do you think, Mike? I mean, I've traveled over 4,000 miles to show up at this game. So if anything less than a a win is going to piss me off. Uh, so I'm going to go with a win. We're, we're going to win this game. Uh, I think it's going to be another high-scoring game, similar to Oakland, as you guys have pointed out. I think the, the Chargers' defense is susceptible to a lot of different things through the air and, and on the ground. And uh, I don't know about the exact number, but I, I think it's going to be a high-scoring game where the Browns pull it off um, kind of late in the fourth quarter um, in true Baker Mayfield fashion. And the stadium's going to go crazy. I'm not going to have a voice, but it's not going to matter because I'm on vacation for next week and I don't have to report to work. So who cares about my voice? So let's go Browns. Yeah, I like, I like that. I like Mike's better. Yeah, I like Mike's better too. <laughs> I will say that in your favor, Mike, the weather report right now looks kind of scummy for Sunday. It looks like rainy and like 50, upper 50s. So that really bodes well for a Chargers team that historically has not been able to come out east and play well in bad weather. Yeah, that's not going to bode well for me either coming uh, out from Hawaii because I don't know if I pack too many uh, warm weather clothes. And when I say warm weather, um, that means, you know, 50 degrees and lower. I'm going to need a lot of stuff. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. (laughs) I'm rooting for your suffering. I hope it's miserable. Yeah, you should start like a little uh, GoFundMe. I'll I'll pitch in 10 bucks to get some cold weather gear. (laughs) GoFundMe to go to Mark's and get yourself a poncho. (laughs) GoFundMe for a bottle of whiskey to warm me up. Perfect. There you go. There you go. And on that note, uh, fellas, it has been an absolute pleasure as always. Um, My favorite people to talk about Browns. Um, For anybody that's made it to the end of the podcast – Jeez, like I don't even want to put anything ridiculous out because it, it ended up with a, uh, a, 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 th- a couple thinly veiled insults to me uh, last week. But um, <laughs> please, please go to the iTunes store, rate the DBN Network podcast uh, five stars so we can spread the word so that more people will listen to us and that you five or six people are not the only ones listening to this podcast. It'll be great. You'll have lots to talk about. Yeah, I think we're going to get a a few more of these podcasts out a little more regularly. Um, And so uh, keep on listening, all seven of you, uh, and we'll build from there. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. So, So thanks again, boys, and we'll talk soon. All right, guys. Sounds good. Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.